Welcome to the CSB SCB podcast, part of the Canadian Society for Biomechanics. We are your hosts and student representatives, Jackie Zare and Francie Owens. Welcome to episode six of the CSB SCB podcast. Joining us today is Dr. Mike Holmes from Brock University. After completing both his undergrad and master degrees at Memorial University of Newfoundland, he moved to Ontario to pursue his PhD degree at McMaster University, followed by a postdoc fellowship at the University of Waterloo. Today, Dr. Holmes is an associate professor in kinesiology at Brock University, where he runs the neuromechanics and ergonomics lab. He further holds the positions of adjunct professor in the Faculty of Health Sciences at the University of Ontario Institute of Technology, graduate faculty member of the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College, and Canada Research Chair in Neuromuscular Mechanics and Ergonomics. He has been a member of the CSB for many years, with six years of service on the Executive Committee. And today we'll see that in terms of research and work, he is really an all-rounder. Dr. Holmes, thank you for being here to chat with us today. Thank you very much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast so far, and I'm excited to be here. Okay, that's great. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> You've been in your current position at Brock University for five or maybe even closer to six years, which is a while, but also not like, a super long time. And yet you have a big and productive lab group and you're already well in the double digits when it comes to students that you've supervised. When did you realize that you wanted to stay in academia and become a professor? Growing up, I had no real intentions, I don't think, on becoming a teacher or an academic. I'm from a small family in small town Newfoundland, and I was the first in my family to go to university, and I certainly didn't grow up with aspirations of getting a, a PhD, but I think pretty early into graduate school is when I knew that it was for me. Early into my master's degree, I, I think I got hooked on research. I I think it was the unknown, the experimental process of solving problems, that, all that was, was fascinating. And I was always a little bit techie, I guess. And so I took to the equipment and the analysis side of things. And at the same time, I enjoyed interacting with people. So I was really drawn to the human experimental side of research. And I would say that I was also incredibly lucky to start my career in a really awesome environment. I became great friends who I'm still friends with today with some older graduate students and they ended up having a big influence on my life. And to be honest, being from Newfoundland, I was a little bit sheltered to the competitiveness, I think, of graduate school and faculty positions. But I had this group of older graduate students and friends who left Newfoundland to pursue PhDs. And that sort of opened my eyes, I think, that I could do the same thing. So I moved to Ontario, as you mentioned and started down the path of becoming a professor. On paper, this path looks like it was pretty straight and possibly pretty smooth <laughs> too. Was that really the case though? Or did it feel like that for you too? That, that's such a, such a great question. And I, I had to reflect and think about this one as, as I was uh, preparing. I totally get that looking at my path on paper, it appears straight and smooth, as you say, I guess, PhD to brief postdoc to faculty position, not much time in between. But let me reassure you that when you're in the moment as a student, it doesn't feel smooth at all. And I certainly don't forget that when I'm 
supervising and helping mentor my own students. I try to keep that in mind. Funny enough, looking back, I think I was a bit naive to this, almost embarrassed to say this, but we'll be honest and open here. I left Newfoundland to pursue a PhD. And I think in the back of my mind, I always thought that I'd eventually go back to Newfoundland. And, you know, there's only one university in the entire province with a small kin faculty. So really the chances of me ever going back were pretty slim, I think. And so putting all that aside, uh, I recognize that I'm, I'm pretty fortunate to have, I think it was a fairly straight career path. Mind you, I did apply for, you know, a lot of faculty positions along the way. Many I never heard back from. Some I had interviews for and, and didn't get the job in the end. You know, it's just, I think I was incredibly fortunate that I, I did have options. And at the time when I was coming along, there were a lot of things to apply for. There are many trainees who see themselves or would like to see, them, see themselves in a position like yours one day. Um, however, we know that the number of jobs is, is limited on that level. And from your own experience, can you name some of the things that you did during your training or some strategies that you had to, that helped you to reach this goal? Another really good question and, and not an easy one to answer, but you did mention that the number of jobs on this level is, is a little bit limited. And before I get into some strategies, I think we should talk about that for a second, just to sort of place my role a little bit. The first thing I would say is that I recognize I'm, I'm pretty fortunate to be in the position I'm in as a Canada Research Chair. And I, I recognize that you know there are a lot of colleagues that are just as deserving to hold a position like this. But as you said, like, there are few and far between, small number of positions, and a lot of really good researchers. So there's that. Um, so again, I never really set out with the goal of being a CRC. If we're being honest, I did prefer the research and graduate student teaching side of the traditional faculty position more than a, a higher teaching load. But I was really happy in my first faculty position. And I think sometimes you people maybe in your life to help push you and I had family and colleagues that nudged me towards the position I'm in, and, and I'm grateful for it because, you know, I'm definitely very happy in this position. The other thing I wanted to say about this before I talk about a few strategies, I think it's important to mention that these CRC positions are secured by the universities and faculties in advance of the person starting the position. And so in my case, my kin colleagues at Brock were selected at the university level to get a a CRC position, broadly speaking. And then collectively, as a group, they decided that they wanted a CRC in neuromuscular mechanics and ergonomics. So that's fairly specialized. And I was lucky to a certain extent that at the same time, you know, they were deciding on this position. I was starting my first faculty position somewhere else and I was learning and growing my research program. And I had these disciplines and research areas in mind. So me being in my current position is as much about timing, I think, as it is being a good researcher. But back to some of the strategies, I think these relate to my first faculty position too. So not just my current CRC position. Of course, all the typical things like building a strong track record of publications, having good research ideas, all those things are important. But so many students have all of that right now. You're all doing... I think such good work and producing such high quality work that you need to develop other skills to stand out. And I'm a, a strong believer in developing what we call soft skills, so attributes and personality traits that I think are going to be important. Faculty positions are, 
these long-term commitments, right, from both sides. The hiring committees want to make sure that you'll be a good colleague for years to come. And I think one of the strategies that I adopted was to try to early on work on my social skills and put myself out there. For me, that was something that I recognized that I needed to work on, I think, as a student. I didn't really enjoy public speaking. I wasn't confident in those situations, I don't think. I had a tendency to stick with the people I knew and you know our lab members and things like that. So one thing that I, I remembered consciously doing late in my PhD, I made an effort to work on this. I, I made note of the fact that and you guys probably recognize this too. You go to a conference, you sit at the table with your lab mates and the people from your university. And you don't move. Yeah, you don't, exactly. And so I made an effort to try and not do that. You know, I decided, you know, at an international conference, I would sit with people I didn't know at the end of the conference dinner or something. And I think this provided me with an opportunity to try to get out of my comfort zone, get comfortable being uncomfortable as we say, I ended up meeting people who are now colleagues and friends and people who ultimately had a big impact on me getting the position that I, I have now. So I, I think that was something that I did early on that was extremely valuable in the end. In terms of the CRC position in general, again, there there's a few CRC positions and and the timing has to be right for it to work out. So it might sound strange to say this, but I don't think I'd encourage people to set a goal like become a CRC, right? It's sure there's there, there's just so many factors I think that might be out of your control and that actually coming coming to life or happening. So sure, becoming a faculty member, a professor, that might be a, a really good reasonable goal. But I think it's important to strive to to just do the best that you can, be the best that you can be uh, in the job that you're in. And in my case, I wanted to to grow a strong independent research program. And I was doing that in my first faculty position. I had what I thought were really good research questions to answer. And I had to step outside my comfort zone again to, to answer them. I felt like I needed to grow outside of my traditional learnings of biomechanics and ergonomics to answer some of these questions. And for instance, I needed to better understand neurophysiology to answer some of my questions. So. I was lucky to have a colleague in my first faculty position and, you know, you put your egos aside and you start right at the beginning with, with some of the undergrad students and you learn techniques and equipment. And I think, so I think that was a strategy that helped me greatly was because I, I stepped outside my comfort zone again. I, I learned new techniques and in the end, those skills were the reason why I got the position I'm in now, I think. So keep your head down, do good work and you'll be rewarded for that. I'm a firm believer in that. Looking back now, are there any aspects to your job as a professor that surprised you, good or bad, that you maybe had not considered getting into it? There's so many. <laughs> oh, we could talk about this for the full episode, maybe. I think we're all somewhat sheltered as graduate students and not entirely prepared for all aspects of a faculty position. So there, there are a few things for sure that come to mind. I would say that I wasn't surprised by teaching. I knew that teaching was a, a part of the job. But besides some TAing, I, I wasn't really prepared, I don't think, to be a teacher. And I had very little training exposure to it. And I've got colleagues who are you know, winning awards as teachers, and 
they're pretty amazing at what they do. And I've still got a lot to learn, I think, on that regard. So I think I was surprised how much time and effort it took to be a really good teacher. I definitely underestimated that. It's really easy, I think, to get consumed by all the different aspects of the faculty position. You've got to balance your teaching with your research and your service. And you can very quickly get consumed by trying to develop the perfect lectures and all of those sorts of things. And so I definitely underestimated all of the aspects that go into the teaching side of things. And then I think the other one that I'd mention is about funding and essentially balancing budgets, because I came from a a well-funded lab, as you both do, and that's a bit of a luxury and it's a privilege, right? We all know that getting grants is probably getting harder now than ever before, right? There's funding cuts and success rates seem to be really low. So you need to guide your money along. You don't really know where the next grant's going to come from. So that can be stressful and you learn skills along the way about how to budget appropriately. So moving on to some of your own research now, we picked out a few specific topics that we want to discuss in a bit more detail today. But first, we want to gain, I guess, a more clear understanding of this term neuromechanics. And in line with this discussion we've been having about faculty positions, prior to COVID-19, there were even a few targeted directly towards this discipline. And so as the Canada Research Chair, can you give us a brief overview of neuromechanics and how it might differ from some of the more classical principles of biomechanics? To your point there about there being some faculty positions lately with the the term neuromechanics in the advertisement, I think that partly stems by we see that there's this growing desire for interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary research. And I think the neuromechanics theme fits well across multiple disciplines. And so I think it's it's attractive to a, a lot of people when they're deciding on what types of faculty positions they're they're going to recruit for. So I think that's part of the that process. I think there's a bit of a conception or mis- maybe a misconception that neuromechanics is somewhat of a new term, but really it's been around for quite a long time. I had to look this up when I was thinking about this, but you know, Roger Anoka has the textbook Neuromechanics of Human Movement, and the first edition I think was in the 1980s, and there's been you know, four or five editions since then. So this concept has been around for a while, and if you summarize from his textbook, Neuromechanics is really the the study of how the nervous system controls the actions of muscles to exert forces on their surroundings and ultimately produce movement. So really, it's considering the neuro, taking techniques of neurophysiology, and the physics, taking techniques from biomechanics to provide like a, a full perspective on understanding human movement. In terms of how this is different than classic biomechanics, it's just more of a complete neuro-to-movement perspective, right? Often in classical biomechanics, we focus on the output, the limb movement, maybe the internal external forces. Of course, things like electromyography is popular in biomechanics, and that, that might give some insight into the neural part, but it doesn't really tell us the full story from starting to initiate a movement to generating the movement to the end point, which is often the, the actual output. So to do that, I think we need to incorporate more of the neurophysiology into the biomechanics techniques, and, and that's where the neuromechanics approach comes from. A common interest is the study of repeated strain injuries, and with yourself included, we 
often try and understand the underlying mechanisms of these injuries in order to hopefully one day implement some strategies to prevent them. Can you give an example of a neuromechanical injury mechanism and how it might differ from a strictly mechanical or biological pathway and what additional or supplementary information is gained? I view this as a, a little bit of a, it's a little bit more connected than just a neuromechanical pathway or just a mechanical pathway. And so I think when you say a, a mechanical injury pathway, you might mean, you know, a structure or tissue is loaded in a particular way over time that mechanical loading might lead to tissue damage or something like that. But I, I think like a the bigger picture approach to that injury pathway might suggest that you look at the whole neuromuscular system, the motor system in general, there's still a role to be played there. So it's not just purely a mechanical injury pathway. And I think in most activities, you know, tasks can be achieved with different kinematic strategies, let's say, and especially if you have a redundant or you know, some people call it an abundant muscular system, like the hand or forearm, which we'll probably talk more about the upper extremity in a little bit. This might mean that, you know, there are different spatial, temporal patterns of muscle activity that can result in the same output. To explain that a little bit further, some of the techniques that we use in our lab to better understand not just the output, but also the entire pathway. We look at something called nervous system excitability. We do this by studying the responsiveness of the corticospinal tract. So this is a major descending neural pathway that carries signals from the brain to the spinal cord, and then those motor neurons are activated, and that causes the muscle to contract and so on and so forth. By examining this responsiveness during different tasks, which we call corticospinal excitability, we can observe patterns of activity that characterize movement. And so in our work, we've shown that this nervous system excitability is altered based on the biomechanics. So things like joint angles and muscle lengths are going to play a factor. But we've also shown that moving the arm, let's say, so let's say if we rotate the shoulder, that can influence excitability to the forearm muscles. But yet, mechanically speaking, in that situation, if you're rotating just the shoulder and let's say constraining the elbow and wrist, mechanically nothing changes at the forearm, but we've shown that there can be changes to the neural excitability to the forearm muscles. So in addition to the traditional, I think, biomechanical considerations for things like force generation, this might suggest that there are other factors to consider as the nervous system may be more primed for you know, force output in certain postures than others and things like that. So I think in our neuromechanics view, we try to view how and why people might have different strategies to complete the same task. And, and a better understanding of this could lead to a better understanding of the injury pathway or the mechanisms from a, a more holistic neuromechanics approach. The first bigger topic that we picked to discuss is your work on upper extremity, where the wrist seems to be of particular focus. And a central aim of your lab, as we identified it anyway, <laughs> is uh, to, to understand uh, work-related pain and injuries, uh, like, for example, carpal tunnel that can have debilitating effects on our ability to perform tasks that seem simple. And maybe you already mentioned now that you test this neural excitability, but maybe aside from that, what are some of the techniques that you use to probe the neurological and neuromechanical processes of these um, musculoskeletal disorders. Yeah, so I kind of mentioned it briefly. I'll, 
I'll come back to that in a second because there's some specific techniques that we use to, to actually measure the, the excitability. I'll admit we haven't spent too much time of late on purely the carpal tunnel. Some of my early work and my PhD work did. I think our focus of late has been more on, we would simply call it neural control of the hand. And so understanding the forearm muscles in more detail. So of course, control of the hand and wrist is going to be related to carpal tunnel syndrome and carpal tunnel problems and other nerve entrapment issues, but also repetitive strain injuries, lateral epicondylitis, injuries of that nature. I just mentioned how we, we study the ner nervous system excitability. And in this case, we've got a variety of techniques that we use to help us measure the responsiveness all along the entire corticospinal tract. And this is something that we do that I think is pretty valuable. We can evaluate responses at three different levels of the nervous system. So we use something called transcranial magnetic stimulation to stimulate over the motor cortex, and that will allow us to evaluate cortical spinal excitability. And then we can use another technique called transmastoid electrical stimulation, which allows us to stimulate the spinal cord directly. So a technique to assess spinal excitability, which is then independent of the cortical input, because we remember back to some of our motor control classes, there are things like central pattern generators where movements can be initiated and controlled at the spinal cord level and not necessarily at the cortical level. So we can start to partition where those changes might happen. And then we measure peripheral nerve excitability by stimulating the nerve root and evaluating the muscle directly that way. So we've kind of got those three techniques that give us a hierarchy of the nervous system. We always come back to our comfort zone and our traditional measures of force output. And we do lots of different EMG processing techniques like understanding co-contraction and co-activation of muscles. When we talk about the hand, the complex thing is that we've got muscles that control similar actions from gripping to wrist movements. And so we really try to spend some time understanding what muscles contribute to gripping actions, what muscles control the wrist movements. Some of them are the same, some of them are different. And so we're spending a lot of time trying to understand those muscular responses and really under both fatigued, I think, and non-fatigued states. I've had TMS done to me once. That was <laughs> one of the weirdest experiences of my entire life. They wanted my quad muscles to contract And it happened, but also my nose twitched yeah, right. <laughs> every time. That's right. So if you remember back to your motor control days again, you might remember something called the motor humunculus, right? Where you yes. Remember this image of the representation of what parts of the brain are, are more represented? So luckily for us, the, the upper limb, the hand is highly represented. So we, we can actually stimulate the muscles of the hand and forearm pretty easily with that technique. Another area of work that we've seen recently coming from your lab that I assume could be related to overuse strain injuries of the wrist is related to esports and mm -hmm. gaming related injuries. Can you discuss some of that work and are there additional conditions, tasks or motions that are of particular interest to your lab? I'm glad you mentioned this one. You're right. It's something new that we're doing in the lab and it's something that we're pretty excited about. Of course, the topics related to our previous work really closely. It's a good progression of our work for sure. There's no question that hand and finger control is related to both injury and performance. And so it's a, it's a good extension of what we've been working on. And I think this is a good example of something that I try to 
take pride in as a supervisor. I want my students to explore topics that they're going to be passionate about and topics that they're going to be completely involved in and interested in from the start. And, and so this topic is totally led by my PhD student, Garrick Foreman. And Garrick's got a passion for gaming and he wants to work in the industry. So he's been leading the way on this one for sure. And a few years ago, he came to my office and started telling me about these ideas. And I actually went back and pulled some stats because he threw some of these at me to try to convince me to go down this road. And I had no idea how big esports and gaming has become. And so just to put it in the context, I, I wrote down a few stats for us here. The gaming industry generated revenues of over $150 billion in 2019. It's estimated that more than 2.5 billion people game. And the esports industry has a rapid growth over the last two decades, exceeding $1 billion worldwide in market value in 2021. And then the thing that kind of shocked me as I learned more about this area is that esports athletes now receive contracts, corporate sponsorships, and tournament winnings can earn them millions of dollars a year. And they fill stadiums for people to go watch these athletes play games. So it's lucrative financially for the players. And what we're seeing is that the average esports player has reported that they'll practice for up to 10 hours a day to prepare for some of these events and tournaments. So, you know, we know that extended computer use is associated with elevated risks of fatigue and pain and musculoskeletal disorders and so on and so forth. But we actually don't know much about the physical demands of gaming. And what we're seeing is that professional gamers are starting to retire at really young ages because of repetitive strain injuries. So, you know, many of the recommendations that you see currently are based on office standards and office guidelines. And we don't really know yet all of the demands associated with gaming. And I don't think that we can purely make recommendations based off the office standards. So that's sort of where we're going with this work. We're continuing our work on forearm muscle function by evaluating things like fatigue and performance and how it relates to gaming. And ultimately, the goal is to get into the area of, of guidelines and recommendations for the athletes. You alluded to it earlier about the complexity of the upper extremity system and how it has many integrated parts. We often get caught up with studying how injuries might occur at the region of visible damage or even pain without really understanding the potential for joint dysfunction or injury, either upstream or downstream, to affect that region we're interested in. And a few good and well-known examples of this is how trunk control can influence knee mechanics during perturbation or change in direction tasks, or how ankle constraints can influence low back mechanics during lifting, for example. You've taken a similar approach to the upper extremity, and specifically with regard to how neck pain can impair proprioception of the upper extremity joints. Can you speak to some of that work? It is one considered to be a result of the other, or are they typically reported concurrently? This, the last part of the question is a good one. We'll come to that in the end. I really like, I like your example here, and it, it's exactly along the same lines of our work. Again, I need to give another shout out here because this work was a collaborative effort. A colleague of mine at Ontario Tech University, Bernadette Murphy, she's a, a brilliant clinician and neurophysiology researcher, and she had been studying neck pain for a number of years. And when I went to Ontario Tech, it was sort of a, a nice progression of her work to expand this to, to look closer at my interest of the upper limb. And the connection here comes from, it's a bit of an anecdotal 
thing, but you hear this in the clinic quite a bit, and I'm not a clinician, but I've heard this from, from clinicians. People with neck pain will often say that when they have a flare up or they have acute pain, they'll start to notice that they bump into things more. They might nudge their elbow on a counter or a wall entering a room. They might reach for an object in the fridge and they just seem like it's a little bit off from how they would normally do it. So all anecdotal, but Bernadette's past work showed that there might be some neurophysiological mechanisms for why this might happen. And that formed the basis of what we ended up studying. And the hypothesis that we were, we were going with on some of this was that pain and injury to the neck has been shown to impair central nervous system processing. There's a lot of sensory processes that happen at the neck region. The muscles of the neck have lots of sensory receptors. So if chronic pain develops, there's likely an altered afferent pathway. And that altered afferent feedback from the neck might result in changes to what we call sensory integration. And that could lead to proprioception problems and even motor learning problems. And so we've shown this now across the spectrum of the upper limb. We, we've shown that people with neck pain have altered shoulder proprioception, and we've demonstrated they've had altered elbow proprioception, and then more recently, wrist proprioception. So all the way distally to the hand. And we've also demonstrated this with not just neck pain, but also with neck fatigue. So most people who study fatigue and proprioception typically go at this question from the angle where the, you will fatigue a muscle and then directly measure proprioception at the joint that that muscle is crossing. In our case, what we do is we were, we were able to show that fatiguing the neck muscles had an influence on proprioception in another part of the body, in this case, the unfatigued elbow or, or wrist. It's a tricky question about would one be considered a result of the other. You probably need a longitudinal study pre-injury to post-injury to, to get at some of that specifically. But I think it looks like altered proprioception is the result of, let's call it neck dysfunction, okay, broadly speaking. And I say dysfunction here because, you know, we could go down a rabbit hole of pain. Pain is complex and we could talk about it for a full episode. But Something that I think was, that I should point out that I think was clever in the studies that we did was that we tested people who had chronic neck pain and, you know, we could classify that by, there's a number of different clinical scales to, to evaluate that. But these people also had pain-free days. Okay. So in all our studies, even though we called our neck pain group, the pain group, we tested them on a pain-free day. So the participants had a history of pain but no pain when we tested them. And I think this is important because we know that if you're in pain, people might move differently. So the, their strategies and how they, how they move might change. So this gets around some of those complications, I think. And it shows rather well that there can be altered inputs due to some sort of chronic adaptation. So even when people have no pain, they, there still might be consequences to their past pain history. And I think that's something that we've, uh, we've been able to show. Has this altered proprioception that you've observed influenced the risk of repeated strain injuries to any of the upper extremity joints, for example, by altering posture? I, I think that's definitely could be the case. I'm not sure that it's been looked at close enough yet. I think it's a really good question, and I think it's something that should be explored. In our work, we're talking more about performance and error so far and less about the, the consequences of repetitive strain injuries. But, you know, think about 
a pilot or a surgeon who needs accurate motor outputs, if proprioception is impaired due to something like neck pain, that could have applications to their quality of work. So it could have implications for not just the quality, but also learning new skills and learning new tasks. So I think that's sort of where the application of this work has sort of went so far, but I, I think you're on to something there and it's something to explore further about implications for repetitive strain injuries. Our next round of questions is about rehabilitation robotics. So whatever the reason for an injury may be at some point when trying to get back to normal or as as close to normal as possible, people will have to go through some sort of rehabilitation period. And that might be relatively simple, like you just maybe need to regularly stretch a muscle or do exercises to strengthen it. But in other cases, patients might need extra help. And so what when I thought about this topic, and the first thing that comes to mind for me is something that I saw when I did an internship in a rehabilitation clinic where Patients had suffered a stroke and had lost almost all control over their legs and then tried to learn to walk again on this treadmill with a harness and that really were lifted up a bit to reduce some of the weight. And they had these sort of braces around their legs that would perform the movements for them. And that's just one specific case. Uh, can you tell us a bit about some, what are some general examples of where robotics can really improve the rehabilitation process? Um, but also where there are limitations to their use, if there are any. You summed it up really nicely. Like you just highlighted some really good benefits to robotics, especially depending on the level of impairment or the, the problem that you're trying to tackle. There are two key uses, I think, for robots right now for improving the rehab process. And one is the fact that robots can be used to assess sensory motor function. Okay. So we can develop robots that collect quantitative data. So we can create robotic tests to evaluate things like accuracy, proprioception, joint stiffness, which is can be related to spasticity and rigidity of a joint, which is often a clinical problem. So we can start to get quantitative data that we can then relate to measures of clinical scales, which are often subjective. That can help us then evaluate the effectiveness of the therapy. So that's one application and use of the robotics. And then the other is for training and exercise. This one can be a bit tricky because some of the literature is actually a little bit mixed. There's some evidence to suggest that robotic rehab provides no further improvements than that of traditional manual therapy or strength training approaches. But it's completely mixed, as I said. There are lots of examples that contradict that as well. And, and I think in some of our most recent work, which we'll probably talk about in a bit, we've taken a stance that robotics can improve the rehab process, but also be a complement to and not necessarily a re replacement for other forms of rehab. And of course, the type of injury or the disease, as you, you gave some good examples of, matter in this context. So robotics for orthopedic rehab might be different and have different outcomes than for neurological rehab. If we stick to neurological impairments for a bit, you mentioned stroke and our work has recently been looking at persons with multiple sclerosis. There's evidence that high repetitions multiple times a day can improve motor control and restore uh, motor pathways. So that's where the target is or the potential benefit is to these robotic devices. They can deliver these highly reproducible movements with a high dose. 
And, and the big thing that we've been excited for to explore further in our work is that robotics can measure real-time performance, as I mentioned before. So we can have the robot adapt to the user's performance and have sort of this individualized exercise progression, which is something that you don't often see in traditional forms of therapy or strength training. You change the intensity or the load often based on just feedback from the user, but now we can get data to help guide that individualized approach. And so this form of the adaptive robotics is something that we've been working on lately. And uh, one of my other graduate students, Kaylin Manella, she's leading this project. Two terms that one would come across when searching for robotics rehabilitation are, are exoskeleton and, and effector robots. For us to understand the difference, do you have example for the use of each type of those robots or devices when treating upper extremity injuries? Another really good question, because there are differences here. Exoskeletons and N-effector robots can both be used as a form of human augmentation or for rehabilitation, but there, as you say, there are definitely differences. I think to start, though, we need to make sure that we properly define robotics. In our view, robotic devices are these mechatronic, which is some form of combining mechanical and electrical engineering. There are these devices with a, a certain degree of intelligence to them that can physically intervene on the behavior of the user. So that's the, the key component to the robotics piece is that there's a degree of intelligence built in. And then you've highlighted these two pieces, which are important. And, and really, they differ based on the type of human-robot interaction or human-robot collaboration. So the end effector-based systems are typically designed to mechanically constrain the distal part of the limb. So they're often used in the upper limb. It's a good example is these systems won't really control the whole limb. The user would likely interface with their hand, but then the proximal part of their limb is free to move and free to adapt to any of the forces or perturbations that might be applied by the end effector. So they're popular in rehab and also some industrial settings. Are You're seeing these become more popular for human-robot collaboration and collaborative robots are being implemented. On the other side, the exoskeletons are typically more like wearable devices, and they're designed to reproduce, I guess, to a certain extent, the kinematics of the limb. So the person would wear the device, and the device is capable of replicating the range of motion of the limb of the user. And then there is usually some sort of either active with motors or ability to apply forces to the system or some passive systems with like elastics. And these devices are typically designed such that the mechanical parts are all aligned to parts of the body. So there's a hinge joint that mimics the elbow if it's an upper limb exoskeleton, for instance. Similar to the end effector robots, they're, they're both popular right now for rehab and industrial settings. You brought up the uh, adaptive robotics. Is that one of the most recent projects going on in your lab? Or what, what are some of the most recent work that you're doing in this area? Yeah, so the adaptive robotics pieces, that's the most recent work that we've been doing in this space. And again, it's been led by one of my PhD students, Kaylin. And this was part of Kaylin's master's thesis. She developed an adaptive training program of the hand and wrist 
for persons with multiple sclerosis. And in this case, participants used our robotic device, which is a, a device where the, the user rests their forearm on a platform and they grasp the handle of the device. And it's almost like a joystick and it can move in three degrees of freedom and mimic the rotations of the human wrist. And then we can apply those end effector forces and torques to move the wrist. In this case, for Kalen's work, participants used the device to, to track an object on a computer screen. So the, the robot has a bit of a virtual reality environment built in where we can have the user track something on the computer screen in front of them. So participants came into the lab three days a week over a number of weeks, and they did a training program where they tracked an object on the computer screen. But the adaptive piece comes into play here is in that if there was a high level of impairment, the robot could deliver these assistive forces or would pull the hand closer to the target to help the person perform the movements. And then as the training progresses over the weeks of training, the users would get better, or the hope is that the users would get better. And the robot then could deliver, it would switch to delivering resistive forces. So it could make the exercise more challenging. And then we start to build in a bit of a strength training exercise progression piece to it. So Kaylin had really positive results with this work. And we're going to explore this a bit further with her PhD, where we're looking at targeting these adaptive robotic controls for either focusing on like strength development or skill development. In addition to research going on in your lab, you also work directly with sport and ergonomics companies as a consultant. One of the sports companies that you're involved with is ProPlay AI, which is a company that has developed a technology to evaluate pitching biomechanics. Can you tell us a little bit about ProPlay and what type of research you've been involved in for the development or advancement of this technology? This one's a, a perfect segue from the last episode, right, with Dr. Selby. ProPlay was started with an interest in, I would say, making the capture of biomechanical data easier and more accessible, right? That was one of the goals. And as you guys talked about a few weeks ago, with recent advancements in computer vision, we've seen a, a rise in the popularity of markerless motion capture solutions. You know, the big tech companies are getting into the space more and more these days. And there's some really great open source solutions for pose estimation and things like that. And yeah, so you guys did a great job discussing all of that in the last episode with Dr. Selby. So ProPlay is using markerless motion capture solutions for baseball pitching, but hopefully other sport applications soon as well. So that's sort of the goal, not just for, for baseball pitching. But ProPlay uses a, a smartphone app that lets you record video or upload video from past sessions. And the result then is a, a dashboard that gives you a bunch of what we think are important metrics for baseball pitching performance. And also it sort of gives you an ability to visualize and classify where you might fall along the spectrum of competitors or elite athletes. So there's some obviously big advantages to this type of technology. And again, you guys talked about those a lot in the, the last episode, but you know, no wearables being attached to the, the athlete to track their motion is a, a huge benefit. Plus we can, more easily move from the lab to infield collections. Those are all really strong pieces to this markerless movement. Of course, there are also lots of limitations. I think though ProPlay has done a really good job of being open and honest about the technology. We use a 
single camera for motion tracking. And that means you're going to sacrifice accuracy for simplicity, right? There, there's a trade-off there. There's no question. But we've been working on validating the tech and relating the tech to our lab's gold standard Bicon Marker motion capture system. And that means that we can you know, figure out what we're able to track really well and what needs work. Even before we started down this road of the markerless solution, Dr. Mike Son, who's sort of the, the lead of ProPlay, he and I had a graduate student a number of years ago who worked with baseball coaches and we got them to evaluate postures from pitching videos and images. And we quickly found that even high level coaches would struggle to accurately tell us what the postures were of the pitcher. So we started to think that, well, if coaches are having trouble even distinguishing from video and images, and they do this for a living, I think we could probably start to give as good of a, a result simply with a markerless solution or markerless approach. So we in no means think that it replaces marker technology for accuracy, but it does give coaches a way to quickly give athletes feedback and to be able to track their progress over a variety of you know sessions or throughout a season. When you talk about metrics that are available to the athletes and coaches on this dashboard, are they biomechanical? So like the kinematics that you just mentioned, or are there other performance related metrics like throwing velocity, which is just the first one that comes to mind? In terms of what pro play assesses, mostly the kinematics, you know, we try to do full body joint angles and velocities, but also temporal metrics like what the arm is doing in terms of its path in space, stride length, timing of different kinematic sequences. All of those metrics tend to be used in baseball to evaluate performance, but we don't have any means of tracking pitch velocity. And we don't have a, a good way of tracking that within the app. So that's something that's usually done outside of the app with a radar gun, for instance. We do have two students right now who are working on this exact topic. So they're using data captured from ProPlay to look at things like the kinematic sequence. And we're also able to get all of those performance metrics like ball velocity from all the pictures that we recorded our markerless mocap data on. And so now we're starting to match up and pair things like the kinematic sequence to performance. Most of the literature to date though is somewhat mixed, not a lot of really strong correlations to performance. In terms of injury, though, it's, it's a lot more complex, right? And we haven't really gone down that road. Our main focus has been on the performance piece. But when we talk about injury, there's, you know, all kinds of other variables that are needed to help predict injury, anthropometrics and training and, you know, even genetics. So there's a lot that goes into the injury piece. So for now, bottom line, I think ProPlay is sticking with tracking mechanics providing a context to the user about how their mechanics look compared to elite or similar level players and so that you can track those performance changes over time. Is this primarily being used as a training tool right now or is there an option for some in-game performance assessments as well? So in theory, it could absolutely, I guess, be used as an in-game assessment, but for the most part, it's being used as a training tool. The last item on our list are five rapid fire questions for you. And okay. please try to answer each in one sentence or less. So number one, what was the most challenging project you have worked on so far? 
So I, I would say that one of our more recent projects with the adaptive robotics, just because there, there was a lot that goes into the adaptive algorithms for controlling a robot and then dealing with the clinical population was new to us. So we had a lot to learn there. Number two, can you think of one aspect of muscle control or a neural mechanism that really fascinated you when you first learned about it? It was exactly what I talked about earlier. The fact that we could see changes in neural excitability to the forearm muscles without mechanically changing anything at the forearms. We would restrict the elbow and wrist, but move the arm and see that there were changes at the forearm. Number three, what is the most important thing you learned from the process of doing your PhD? Resilience and being able to be comfortable with uncertainty. Number four, who do you think has had the biggest or large influence, at least on the field of neuromechanics? Going back to my answer to defining neuromechanics, I would probably say Roger Anoka. And number five, You have been living in Ontario for years now, but is there one thing that you think people should really know about Newfoundland? I think people probably already know this, but I think even though they've probably heard that the scenery is amazing, I think they would still be amazed when they actually go and see it. So I think the scenery and just the general friendliness of the people there. That concludes our sixth episode with Dr. Mike Holmes. Dr. Holmes, thank you again for joining us today. Thanks very much for having me. In the next episode, we will be speaking with Dr. Salvatore Federico from the University of Calgary about continuum mechanics of soft tissues. Remember, if you have a specific question for our next guest, please feel free to email them to us so they can be integrated into the interview. Our email address is students at csb-scb.com. 